Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where we're going to take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by editor Casey Lesser. Hey, Isaac. And collector relations associate and art genome alum and podcast alum, Sarah Gottsman. Hi. So 2017 marked the 80th anniversary of our subject, Picasso's famous painting, Guernica. Depicting the bombing of a Spanish town during the country's civil war, the work has become an icon for revolutionary struggles and the atrocities of conflict through to the present day. The history around this painting and what led up to its creation is integral to understanding its meaning and its resonance. So Casey, can you set the scene? What was happening in Spain in the years leading up to the painting of Guernica? Yeah, so Guernica was painted in May 1937, and the Spanish Civil War had begun the summer before that in 1936. And the war was between the Spanish Republic and Francisco Franco and the Nationalists. The Republic had formed in 1931, and they had been planning this um, pavilion. So they were going to have this national pavilion at the Paris Exposition of 1937. And they had been planning it since 1934. But after war broke out in 1936, they kind of had to totally change their plans and couldn't really do a utopian vision anymore, which is what most of the countries are presenting themselves there were doing. So on the one side, you had Franco, the fascist. And on the other side, you had the Republic, which was sort of backed by tons of prominent artists. Is that right? Like I know that Ernest Hemingway went to fight there, John Dos Passos, and and it turns out visual artists as well. Yeah. Maybe not necessarily fighting all of them. Picasso never fought in the war. Picasso was in Paris this whole time, but they were prominent supporters and had kind of aligned themselves with the Republic. Uh, So this expo is coming up in Paris. The Republican side is planning for it. What are they thinking kind of statement do they want to make? They want to represent their ideals. So liberty, freedom, justice, while also drumming up support for their cause. They needed money, really. They commissioned a lot of artists, um, a lot of Spanish artists who were working in Paris, as well as others like Alexander Calder, to create artworks that were specifically meant to be shown in this pavilion, representing them, representing their ideals. So while they couldn't really, they didn't have the money to do something really large and impressive, they did have these connections and this support to have these really prominent artists making work on their behalf. It's quite a romantic cause for artists, but they were always the beleaguered side financially. So they turn to Picasso and they commission Picasso to create a work for this pavilion. Originally, he's not thinking about doing something political. Uh, what, what changed his mind? Well, every artwork in the pavilion is technically political because it's siding with the Republic. But initially, um, you know, based on what scholars have been able to tell, he was actually doing a scene of an interior an artist in his studio painting a reclining nude. So when you think about Guernica, it's kind of surprising to learn that the original plan was to do an artist in his studio painting a naked woman. But it really speaks to what Picasso was doing at the time. So actually, um, for this 80th anniversary, the Reina Sofia in Madrid, which is the museum that houses Guernica has done this whole exhibition um, on the path to Guernica and the curators have kind of looked at the decade preceding Guernica to see where it came from because it didn't come out of nowhere and it wasn't like 
only informed by the bombing of Guernica. It really speaks to what Picasso was doing in the decade before. Right. So, so as you sort of just mentioned, uh, this work depicts a, an actual historical moment in in the Spanish Civil War, which became, you know, basically a bloodbath. And we should say, if we haven't already, that the Nazis were backing Franco's side. And they were involved also, the Germans were involved in this bombing of the town Guernica. So, so what happened and how did that kind of change Picasso's calculus? So usually when you talk about Guernica, you talk about the bombing of the town of Guernica, which happened on April 26, 1937. So that was when uh, Francisco Franco had sent in the Nazi Condor Legion to bomb this tiny town. Um, it was on a market day. Over 1,600 people died and about 900 people were injured. And so this was really terrible and upsetting and tragic because this was the first moment during that war where a defenseless town was being targeted. So Picasso opened his newspaper on April 27th, was horrified, and you know that's where he really landed on the subject for the final painting. But the painting also speaks to what he was doing in those years before, where he was doing a lot of interior scenes. This is coming out of the time he was um, part of the surrealist circle, so they were thinking a lot about the human psyche um, and darkness. So he was doing a lot of scenes of interiors initially with kind of like musical instruments and fruits and still lifes and that kind of thing but then he um, started putting humans in interiors and was really looking at this kind of psychologically charged um, stage and you know he was depicting a lot of women and thinking about you know what it meant to represent their bodies in unrealistic and kind of deformed ways and he was thinking you know, he maybe wasn't thinking, but he was um, leading up to this point where he was being able to use deformed human bodies to represent pain and terror and plight. So, Sarah, the actual work he creates is not a mural, but it's a mural-sized painting. It's obviously too big for you to, to take us through it inch by inch, but what does he ultimately decide? How does he represent this sort of atrocity? Yeah, for those who can't kind of picture Guernica in their minds, I can do my best to paint a picture for you of what it looks like. So the painting is done fully in black and white, and it's a chaotic scene with multiple figures, animals. Um, and as Casey was saying, It'll take a moment, but you can realize that it's based in an interior because there is a light fixture on, on the ceiling and there's an open door with figures rushing in holding a candle. There's a one figure with his hands in, his, in the air by a window screaming. Um, there's a weeping woman holding her child who looks like he just died. There's a horse uh, on top of a, a man with his arms outstretched and a broken sword and a bull. And a bird and some other things that you'll discover as the more you see. And I assume that there's these these symbols stand for things, although I'm, I'm guessing Picasso never would like created a, a handy, you know, book to explain everything. But but what is what are some of the symbols kind of represent? Yeah, in fact, Picasso with this work especially did not want to do any meaning making for us. He would say that the bull was a bull and a horse was a horse, even though. There's probably hundreds and hundreds of pages of scholarship about what that bull, a horse, could be. For example, some people will say that the bull 
because of uh, bullfighting and things like that, represents Spain. Some people would say that it represents Franco. Some would say that because the bull is the calmest figure in this moving room, that the bull is the spectator, that the bull is us. So mm. you can kind of get at it from from many, many angles there. So in terms of Picasso's uh, overall output, I mean, I think the other painting that stands up there with Guernica is Le Demoiselle d'Avignon. And we were chatting about this yesterday and you were saying that, you know, if you're looking at a list of like the top 10 greatest artworks of the 20th century, it's it's going to be La Demoiselle, not Guernica, but Guernica has like a, a impassioned following. Yes, we were having a debate yesterday about uh, which of Picasso's two most famous paintings is most important. And it would be my hypothesis that depending on which one you say is your favorite or the most important tells me a little bit about why you're interested in art and what you think art is for or why art is interesting. Because if you say that La Demoiselle d'Avignon is Picasso's most important painting, uh, you probably are interested in formal aspects of art. So how line, form, and color come together to build an image and to depict a body or a form or something abstract. Uh, La Demoiselle d'Avignon is often considered the precursor to cubism, and in that, the precursor to abstraction in general. Guernica, on the other hand, if you're arguing that that's the most important painting by Picasso, the most important painting of the 20th century, my guess is that you're really interested in what art can do beyond the canvas. So you're interested in the political aspects of art, the conceptual aspects of art, how art can impact society or the world at large. On the one hand, La Demoiselle d'Avignon I think did the most for art history. Um, if you're thinking about which works went beyond art history, uh, Guernica would be the winner there. So the jury's still out. Well, I'm definitely on team Guernica because I think as, as people who are familiar with the painting will know, it came to represent so much more than the bombing of a small Spanish town. The thing about Guernica is like, you can look at it and you won't know it's Spain. You know, maybe you'll know it's Picasso, but you know, from the start, it was in an international context. And then at the close of this expo in Paris, it traveled the world in support of the Republic. And of course, the Republic lost and the war ended in 1939. And at that point, it went to MoMA for a Picasso retrospective. But in the decades that followed, it continued to travel the world and kind of became this symbol that represented Dresden and Berlin and Hiroshima and Pearl Harbor. Um, so it kind of became this painting that was able to reach a kind of universal meaning of tragedy and, you know, the plight of innocent victims. Yeah. And so as you sort of mentioned, Picasso said that the work could never be exhibited in his native Spain while Franco was still alive. Yeah. So at one point, Franco tried to get it back. And Picasso, who I believe didn't even leave a will. He left like written documentation to ensure that Guernica didn't return to Spain until there was democracy in Spain, until Franco was gone. So Picasso actually died in 1973. Franco died in 1975. And it wasn't until 1981 that Guernica finally went back to Spain, where, where it remains today. And so it went on kind of a, a world tour yeah. After being exhibited, it showed, like you said, it at MoMA, New York, where it became a symbol for the Vietnam War, or as is linked to that. But it also put a lot of physical strain on the work itself to travel so much. Yeah, definitely. So, in the years following the Paris Expo, it traveled all over the U.S. Um, it went, it traveled all over Europe. At a certain point, it traveled to um, Brazil, and so basically 
through 1958. It was traveling like crazy and the canvas had to be taken off of its stretchers and rolled up and put back on so many different times that it became really damaged. And at a certain point, it was deemed unfit to travel. So at that time, it remained in MoMA in New York until it returned to Spain. Yeah, I mean, one reason I think that it had such an international resonance is that this is a painting where what's depicted itself is abstract and universal and can be applied to any time of human trauma and suffering. But in its name and its origin story, it's referencing specific suffering. So it both can be applied to anyone but has this real backing. And I think of Guernica in comparison to another Spanish painter, Goya's series, The Horrors of War, which was another, I think, precursor and inspiration for Picasso. Um, But what's different there and why I think that doesn't have the same resonance, it's a series of prints and drawings, but it's not referencing a specific case of human suffering. It's thinking about human suffering writ large. And I think for Guernica itself, um, even though the scene isn't specific to Spain, the title and the story is what gives it the backing underneath that universality that that gave it such an emotional resonance for such a long time. And another thing about Guernica is that it's been adopted for protest as well. There's documentation of it being represented on protest signs across the world um, in the United States and Europe and beyond. Yeah, and I I think it's interesting, too. You were telling me a story, which I I didn't actually know, that when Colin Powell uh, was giving a speech on weapons of mass destruction in the lead-up to the Iraq War, there's a tapestry of the work, and they they had covered it up behind him. Yeah, Colin Powell was giving a speech on the American case for a war against Iraq, and it was in this room where this Guernica tapestry is, and they covered it up with a blue curtain. And so kind of the press immediately caught on to what was happening. Just the the irony of that juxtaposition was just way too much for anyone on TV to be able to watch. Yeah, and it also strikes me as a recognition even by politicians today or in recent years that this image is so visceral that it can clash with those who want to beat the drums of war and to, to try and do that behind a work that really shows the consequences and the realities of violence in sort of a very powerful way. You know, them, them covering this, this up shows that they recognize that it could actually dampen people's spirits for conflict. Uh, it always feels extremely strange to jump from something this serious to something like white wine, but... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna plow ahead with it. So, uh, Sarah, where in the art world are you gonna be drinking white wine this week? I think I have an artsy podcast first, and that I'm headed up or down, I suppose, to New Jersey. I think that is a first. Yeah, I'm going to the Montclair Art Museum, which I've never been to before. Uh, they're having an exhibition on Matisse and American art. Um, how Matisse has inspired American artists like Andy Warhol, Faith Ringgold, Roy Lichtenstein. So excited to see what that's about, Casey. I'm going to see the new Bordolami Gallery, which is opening in Tribeca, just down the block from our offices. They have a show of Daniel Buren. He's a very well-known French artist known for contrasting stripes, and he'll be uh, opening a show that's meant to transform the gallery space. I'm going to be going to check out the Carol Rama exhibition at the new museum. Uh, Very excited. For that all right well bring that, some tissues is it emotional it's sad 
I'm quick to tear up. So thank you for the pro tip. And, and listeners, if you're going to check it out, bring, bring some, some tissues. tissues. All right. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much to Casey and Sarah for joining us. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. See you guys next time. Our producer this week, as always, editorial associate Abigail Kane, and the theme music is by Broke for Free. <laughs>